Do you see how that's so true today? See, everyone thought that it was simply about, oh, he needs to win uh, because, you know, he doesn't like to lose. No, 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 no. <laughs> so um, I have to say extreme thanks to someone refocusing me on some other things. But, uh, you know, I found it quite fascinating how... Well, I was talking about Kazakhstan last year and the year before that and how important it is that we focus on it. But now Joe Biden's close friend, um, well, Hunter Biden's close friend for Joe Biden was arrested in Kazakhstan for high treason. See, this is going to ping back to Louisiana and it's going to open up the biggest can of worms you'll see. Hence why I think the Secretary of State of Louisiana is posturing. But um, the former uh, Prime Minister, Karim Masimov, uh, by the way, Hunter and the son of that Prime Minister did a lot of partying together, according to the laptop. Anyway, he was uh, detained on suspicion uh, for treason and hence why there's unrest in Kazakhstan. You know, remember when I showed you that video on Kazakhstan? Do you guys... And for those of you that were listening to me um, over the airwaves, I described how dead Astana or Nur Said, the capital was. All of you saw just how nobody was around. Morning, noon, or night, the guy was touring and there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. And all begins with Astana. Well, Nur Said. <laughs> right. And I have said this from 2018. Nobody finds it odd that the headquarters for the European Council, the headquarters for the European Council is in Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan is not part of the European Union. And so that was from 2018, 2019. I keep repeating it. Right. And then I thought, well, now that I'm doing video, let me show people how dead it is how there's no one there, right? And then we did a whole show on Hunter Biden, his Kazaki, uh, you know, uh, people. And you know that time, that one time that I was going to take, um, that I actually employed um, um, Bergie was I needed to pull the IP addresses for the Louisiana people off the emails, which he couldn't do. So this is why I was um, meeting with people in New York in order to put this into order. And that is what we were discussing. Uh, but lo and behold, because I've been so spread thin, uh, refocus. 
I just thought I would bring it up because it's it's quite fascinating that this is now coming up because I said it would hit off in that portion. And what's really weird is why would they in Kazakhstan, which have immense amount of petrol, increase the prices? Now, Russian troops are in Kazakhstan to help quell the violence. Again, I want you guys to pay a little bit of attention. We've talked about the monetary systems before. We've talked about, you know, the dollar system. We've talked about BRICS. And we talked about this new meeting they had for something called the synthetic homogenous currency. Now, a lot of people will be like, well, I'm new. I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. You know, you'll have to go back and look. Uh, because I hear a lot of people, Nisara, Jisara, quantum financial system. And it's like, oh, my God. It doesn't work like that. In order to get a clean state slate, you got to get some pain. It's kind of like how women go for microdermabrasion. You can't get new skin without chemical peeling the top. And it's going to hurt. And you're going to start from nothing. So um, quantum financial system just means that your money is going to be on a blockchain in order to validate your identity and ownership of those credits. So uh, this is highly important, highly important, very, very important. So I thought rather than us talk about Davos that's coming up, I thought it would be great to go through President Trump's speech at Davos in 2020. And maybe listening it to listening to it right now, a lot more may come into focus for you. Here we go. Stage Very special. Here in Davos. Congratulations so on your 50th year, year hosting the, the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, a truly amazing achievement. It's an honor to address the distinguished members of this organization for the second time as president. When I spoke at this forum two years ago, I told you that we had launched the great American comeback. Today, I'm proud to declare that the United States is in the midst of an economic boom, the likes of which the world has never seen before. We've regained our stride, rediscovered our spirit, and reawakened the powerful machinery of American enterprise. America is thriving. America is flourishing. And yes, America is winning again like never before. Just last week alone, the United States concluded two extraordinary trade deals. The agreement with China and the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, the two biggest trade deals ever made. They just happened to get done in the same week. These agreements represent a new model of trade for the 21st century, agreements that are fair, reciprocal, and that prioritize the needs of workers and families. America's economic turnaround has been nothing short of spectacular when I took office three years ago. America's economy was in a rather dismal state. Under the previous administration, nearly 200,000 manufacturing jobs had vanished. Wages were flat or falling. Almost 5 million more Americans had left the labor force than had gotten jobs, and more than 10 million people had been added to the food stamp rolls. The experts predicted a decade of very, very slow growth, or maybe even negative growth, high unemployment and a dwindling workforce, and very much a shrinking middle class. Millions of hardworking 
Ordinary citizens felt neglected, betrayed, forgotten. They were rapidly losing faith in the system. Before my presidency began, the outlook for many nations was bleak. Top economists warned of a protracted worldwide recession. The World Bank lowered its projections for global growth to a number that nobody wanted to even think about. Pessimism had taken root deep in the minds of leading thinkers, business leaders, and policymakers. Yet despite all of the cynics, I had never been more confident in America's future. I knew we were on the verge of a profound economic resurgence if we did things right, one that would generate a historic wave of investment, wage growth, and job creation. I knew that if we unleashed the potential of our people, if we cut taxes, slashed regulations, and we did that at a level that's never been done before in the history of our country in a short period of time, fixed broken trade deals and fully tapped American energy, that prosperity would come thundering back at a record speed. And that is exactly what we did, and that is exactly what happened. Since my election, America has gained over 7 million jobs, a number unthinkable. I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't talk about it, but that was a number that I had in mind. The projection was 2 million, we did 7, more than three times the government's own projections. The unemployment rate is now less than 3.5%, and at 3.5%, that's a number that is the lowest in more than 50 years. The average unemployment rate from my administration is the lowest for any U.S. president in recorded history. We started off with reasonably high rate. For the first time in decades, we are no longer simply concentrating wealth in the hands of a few. We're concentrating and creating the most inclusive economy ever to exist. We are lifting up Americans of every race, color, religion, and creed. Unemployment rates among African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and Asian-Americans have all reached record lows. African-American youth unemployment has reached the lowest it's ever been in the history of our country. African-American poverty has plummeted to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level since 1953. And women now comprise a majority of the American workforce. That's for the first time. The unemployment rate for veterans has dropped to a record low. The unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached an all-time record low. Workers without a high school diploma have achieved the lowest unemployment rate recorded in U.S. history. Wages are rising across the board. And those at the bottom of the income ladder are enjoying the percentage by far largest gains. Workers' wages are now growing faster than management wages. Earnings growth for the bottom 10% is outpacing the top 10%, something that has not happened. Paychecks for high school graduates are rising faster than for college graduates. Young Americans just entering the workforce are also sharing in America's extraordinary prosperity. Since I took office, more than two million millennials have gotten jobs. 
and their wages have grown by nearly 5% annually, a number that was unthinkable. Nobody would have ever thought it was possible three years ago. A record number of Americans between the ages of 25 and 34 are now working. In the eight years before I took office, over 300,000 working-age people left the workforce. In just three years in my administration, 3.5 million people have joined the workforce. 10 million people have been lifted off welfare in less than three years. Celebrating the dignity of work is a fundamental pillar of our agenda. This is a blue-collar boom. Since my election, the net worth of the bottom half of wage earners has increased by plus 47 percent, three times faster than the increase for the top one percent. Real median household income is at the highest level ever recorded. The American dream is back, bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. No one is benefiting more than America's middle class. We have created 1.2 million manufacturing and construction jobs, a number also unthinkable. After losing 60,000 factories under the previous two administrations, hard to believe when you hear 60,000 factories, America has now gained in a very short period of time 12,000 new factories under my administration, and the number is going up rapidly. We'll be beating the 60,000 number that we lost, except these will be bigger, newer, and the latest. Years of economic stagnation have given way to a roaring geyser of opportunity. U.S. stock markets have soared by more than 50% since my election, adding more than $19 trillion to household wealth and boosting 401ks, pensions, and college savings accounts for millions of hardworking families. And these great numbers are many things. And it's despite the fact that the Fed has raised rates too fast and lowered them too slowly. And even now, as the United States is by far the strongest economic power in the world, it's not even close. It was going to be close, but a lot of good things happened to us and some not so good things happened to certain other places. They're forced to compete, and we compete with nations that are getting negative rates, something very new, meaning they get paid to borrow money, something that I could get used to very quickly. Love that. Got to pay back your loan? Oh, how much am I getting? Nevertheless, we still have the best numbers that we've had in so many different areas. It's a conservative approach. And we have a tremendous upside potential when all of the trade deals and the massive deregulation starts kicking in, which will be during this year, especially toward the end of the year. Those trade deals are starting to kick in already. The regulations are kicking in right now. And I see such tremendous potential for the future. We have not even started because the numbers we're talking about are massive. The time for skepticism is over. People are flowing back into our country. Companies are coming back into our country. Many of you who I know are coming back in with your plants and your factories. Thank you very much. 
America's newfound prosperity is undeniable, unprecedented, and unmatched anywhere in the world. America achieved this stunning turnaround not by making minor changes to a handful of policies, but by adopting a whole new approach centered entirely on the well-being of the American worker. Every decision we make on taxes, trade, regulation, energy, immigration, education, and more is focused on improving the lives of everyday Americans. We are determined to create the highest standard of living that anyone can imagine. And right now, that's what we're doing for our workers, the highest in the world. And we're determined to ensure that the working and middle class reap the largest gains. A nation's highest duty is to its own citizens. Honoring this truth is the only way to build faith and confidence in the market system. Only when governments put their own citizens first will people be fully invested in their national futures. In the United States, we are building an economy that works for everyone, restoring the bonds of love and loyalty that unite citizens and powers nations. Today, I hold up the American model as an example to the world of a working system of free enterprise that will produce the most benefits for the most people in the 21st century and beyond. A pro-worker, pro-citizen, pro-family agenda demonstrates how a nation can thrive when its communities, its companies, its government, and its people work together for the good of the whole nation. As part of this new vision, we passed the largest package of tax cuts and reforms in American history. We doubled the child tax credit, benefiting 40 million American families and lifting 650,000 single mothers and their one million children out of poverty and out of poverty quickly. We passed the first ever tax credit for employers who provide paid paternal leave for employees earning $72,000 or less annually and passed paid family leave for government employees as a model for the country. We made child care much more affordable and reduced or eliminated child care wait lists all across the nation. Our child care reforms are supporting working parents and ensuring their children have access to high quality care and education, all of which they very much deserve. We lowered our business tax from the highest in the developed world down to one that's not only competitive, but one of the lower taxes. We created nearly 9,000 opportunity zones in distressed communities where capital gains on long-term investments are now taxed at zero. And tremendous wealth is pouring into areas that for 100 years saw nothing. The 35 million Americans who live in these areas have already seen their home values rise by more than $22 billion. My administration has also made historic investments in historically black colleges and universities. I saved HBCUs. We saved them. They were going out and we saved them. We're removing roadblocks to success and rewarding businesses that invest in workers, families, and communities. We've also launched the most ambitious campaign in history to reduce job-killing regulations. For every new regulation adopted, we are removing eight old regulations. 
which will save an average of American households about $3,100 per year. It was going to be for everyone. We do, too. But we were able to lift that to eight, and we think that's going to go quite a bit higher. We still have a way to go. Today, I urge other nations to follow our example and liberate your citizens from the crushing weight of bureaucracy. With that, you have to run your own countries the way you want. We are also restoring the constitutional rule of law in America, which is essential to our economy, our liberty, and our future. And that's why we've appointed over 190 federal judges, a record, to interpret the law as written. 190 federal judges, think of that, and two Supreme Court judges. As a result of our efforts, investment is pouring into our country. In the first half of 2019, the United States attracted nearly one quarter of all foreign direct investment in the world. Think of that. 25% of all foreign investment all over the world came into the United States, and that number is increasing rapidly. To every business looking for a place where they are free to invest, build, thrive, innovate, and succeed, there is no better place on earth than the United States. As a central part of our commitment to building an inclusive society, we established the National Council for the American Worker. We want every citizen, regardless of age or background, to have the cutting-edge skills to compete and succeed in tomorrow's workplace. This includes critical industries like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 5G. Under Ivanka's leadership, who's with us today, our pledge to America's workers has become a full-blown national movement with over 400 companies committing to provide new job and training opportunities to already very close to 15 million American students and workers. 15 million. America is making sweeping changes to place workers and their families at the center of our national agenda. Perhaps the most transformative change of all is on trade reform, where we're addressing chronic problems that have been ignored, tolerated, or enabled for decades. Our leaders did nothing about what happened to us on trade. Before I was elected, China's predatory practices were undermining trade for everyone. But no one did anything about it except allow it to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Under my leadership, America confronted the problem head on. Under our new phase one agreement, phase two is starting negotiations very shortly. China has agreed to substantially do things that they would not have done, measures to protect intellectual property, stop forced technology transfers, remove trade barriers and agricultural goods and on agricultural goods where uh, we were treated so badly, open its financial sector totally, that's done, and maintain a stable currency, all backed by very, very strong enforcement. Our relationship with China right now has probably never been better. We went through a very rough patch but it's never, ever been better. My relationship with President Xi is an extraordinary one. He's for China, I'm for the U.S., but other than that, we love each other. <laughs> Additionally, China will spend an additional $200 billion 
over two years on American services, agriculture and energy and manufactured goods. So we'll be taking in in excess of 200 billion, could be closer to 300 billion when it finishes. But these achievements would not have been possible without the implementation of tariffs, which we had to use, and we're using them on others, too. And that is why most of our tariffs on China will remain in place during the phase two negotiations. For the most part, the tariffs have been left and we're being paid billions and billions of dollars a year as a country. As I mentioned earlier, we ended the NAFTA disaster, one of the worst trade deals ever made, not even close, and replaced it with the incredible new trade deal, the USMCA, that's Mexico and Canada. In the nearly 25 years after NAFTA, the United States lost one in four manufacturing jobs, including nearly one in four vehicle manufacturing jobs. It was an incentive to leave the country. The NAFTA agreement exemplified the decades-long failures of the international trading system. The agreement shifted wealth to the hands of a few, promoted massive outsourcing, drove down wages and shuttered plants and factories by the thousands. The plants would leave our country, make the product, sell it into our country. We ended up with no jobs and no taxes, but buy other countries' product. That doesn't happen anymore. This is the wreckage that I was elected to clean up. It's probably the reason I ran for president more than any other thing, because I couldn't understand why we were losing all of these jobs to other countries at such a rapid rate. And it got worse and worse. And I think it's probably the primary reason that I ran. But there are other reasons also. And to replace with a new system that puts workers before the special interests. And the special interests will do just fine, but the workers come first. Our brand new USMCA is the result of the broadest coalition ever assembled for a trade agreement. Manufacturing, agriculture, and labor all strongly endorsed the deal. And as you know, it just passed in Congress overwhelmingly. It shows how to solve the 21st century challenge we, we all face, protecting intellectual property, expanding digital trade, reshoring lost jobs, and ensuring rising wages and living standards. The United States has also concluded a great new trade deal with Japan, approximately $40 billion, and completely renegotiated our deal with South Korea. We're also negotiating many other transactions with many other countries. And we look forward to negotiating a tremendous new deal with the United Kingdom. Have a wonderful new prime minister. Wants very much to make a deal, as they say. To protect our security and our economy, we are also boldly embracing American energy independence. The United States is now by far the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world, by far. It's not even close. While many European countries struggle with crippling energy costs, the American energy revolution is saving American families $2,500 every year. And numbers that people said couldn't happen. And also, very importantly, prices at the pump. We've been so successful that the United States no longer needs to import energy Has from hostile nations. The limitations of some of our old ways, ways of working. working. 
but it has also created new ones in record time. So take the vaccine that will hopefully protect us all from COVID-19. What normally takes five to 10 years to develop a vaccine was achieved in 10 months because the world pooled its resources, scientists shared their expertise, and different manufacturers worked together. The European Union and others helped with money. Large sums were invested to build research capacities and production facilities early. Europe invested billions to help develop the, the world's, world's first COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, it wasn't planned. To create a truly global common good. Of course it was. And now the companies must deliver. Mm -hmm. They must honor their obligations. They must. And this is why we will set up a vaccine export transparency mechanism. Uh -huh. Europe is determined to contribute to this global common good. Quickly. But it also means business. To your Führer. See, this is the genius of President Trump. I hope you caught it. So that was Davos 2021 that you saw. And Davos 2020, where the president was talking about things nothing to do with the vaccines. Obviously, they had to cut it short. Since they already planned it, since they already had the vaccines done and all they needed was a rollout, since he already knew what they were going to do, he said, all right, I'm just going to hijack it and say, I brought on the vaccine real quick. I'm going to ride this wave. He's a genius, freaking genius. So he's like, wait a minute. They don't need to plan it. Here's a bunch of money for you. Get the vaccine done in America quick, fast, immediately. You guys already had it. So we hijacked that. They're pushing it. In France now, you have been unpersoned if you are unvaccinated. In most European countries, if you are unvaccinated, you are of a lesser human. I know friends and family that are in Europe that one person has dedicated themselves as the guinea pig to get the vaccine so they can go food shopping for the rest of everyone else. And so they can get gas and so they can go to the bank and, 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 and. So you've got like five people dependent on one person so they can actually get things done. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? And this is why in the United States of America, they're coming for your kids first, right? Give us your kids, all of them. Can't represent their civil liberties. They don't have any because we said so. We own them. You shouldn't be in charge of their education. We should. And their health. We should. So they're going to come to the homeschoolers first, like I said. Except if you're in a state like California that says, just give up your rights already. You don't have any. We took them. So this is where we're at. It's a new year, right? <laughs> It's not going to happen. See, the only way we can fix all of this is by fixing 2020. Now, I've been thinking hard. How do you destroy a tank? We all know that answer. How do we get it done? We all know that answer. And all of you are seeing reports about shit I put out years and years ago. Because now they've been told they can talk about it. Because at this point, they think it's no big deal. <laughs> A lot of money is changing hands, too. We have Russian troops in Kazakhstan helping quell violence. It's like 
telling another country, hey, China, send us some troops so you can help us with our violence. Mm, I'm not buying it. Do you know why I'm not buying it? Because I was contracted to work for many, 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 many places. Actually, in QTEL, <laughs> who's like the front of funding a lot of things, um, it was through a contact that I had with a friend that got me my last phony, um, say it, um, job reference so that I can penetrate a PR firm and see how they work. And so, yeah, that was Google. They were my resume. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I have told you I've been to North Korea. Um, it's a quite, it's a fascinating nation. But what makes it fascinating is, is that there are very few networks in North Korea. Very few. Um, if I'm not mistaken, their IPs are very limited. But they have, um, you know, uh, IPs that are uh, that start with 175, and that's pure North Korean. They have IPs that start with the 210. Uh, they have uh, obviously the 175 IPs. Uh, there's about 1,024, very ideal number, bit like almost. And then they have a 210 IP that has 256. Again, very specific number, uh, but that's actually. Uh, floating on Unicom's, um, you know, lines, then the Czech Republic also provides, um, pop North Korea. Uh, so they have, uh, four IPs with that. Uh, so the Czech Republic is involved too. Then we have, um, Roya hosting, uh, for North Korea. They have another 256 and there's one specific IP, which is, IAPS Security Services, it's a VPN service that's out of the Netherlands. So weird. And then uh, that one is a, a 46. Uh, there's a five of them all together. The um, Mampo ISP, the Roya hosting, is only a 45. We've got 128, very specific number. Look, 128, 256, 4, 1, 10, 24, 16, all multiples of, and 8,192 IPs. Now get this, that start with a 57, that say that the country is North Korea, the geolocation IP is North Korea, but the real country is unknown. And the United States has offered them through North Korea cloud VPNs, uh, Korean internet um, running on the 172 lines. Why are we talking about IPs? Because I'm, I'm pretty much, I don't know anything about IPs. I know nothing about networking, of course. <laughs> but see, <clears throat> Eric Schmidt, I wrote an article about him being in Ukraine in 2015, right? And paying a ton of money to CrowdStrike. But a couple of years before that, he actually went to North Korea and had a really nice chat with North Korea about the internet. And about servers. See, a lot of people uh, believe that Google is a private company, and that's that's fine and dandy. It's not, right? Um, it was actually created. Um, it was created by private individuals. I'm. I everything is. They take your idea and then they run with it, right? They take your idea and then they run with it. So, um, 
when it was created uh, back in the 90s when they started to create these search engines, right? Because if you guys remember, there was Netscape and Lycos and Yahoo and all these other search features, right, that they used to have. And um, Google was a little bit different. It was funded by the agency, right? It is the freaking CIA, okay? Anybody telling you different is a liar. Uh you know, if you want to FOIA some fun stuff, here's what you need to FOIA. Start in the 90s, early 90s, when we started to have that big market crash happen with the bubbles after it. Start in the 90s and FOIA any document you can from the Pentagon identified as a Highland Forum, right? See, that was a private internet network. And it was how powerful CEOs right, of companies, uh, powerful guys that were smart, like, I don't know, like owners of big companies, tech companies, Yahoo, Blockbuster that refused to go Netflix and Redbox, um, you know, your Mark Cubans of the day. So Highland is in high H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D forum. So what you need to do is FOIA all uh, the documentation that they can provide to you. It's been over 20 years, so there's no secret, right, I guess. Because you'll see that even contractors like L3Coms, Booze, they would all talk through these forums directly with uh, the Department of Defense with DARPA, basically. They're, DARPA is really the uh, R&D arm, okay? That's how I like to say it. It's like the R&D arm for it. Now, um, the Highlands Forum was founded in 1994, um, and it, this was done under Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton had really smart people behind him. Smart people old guard, pretty interesting, um, <laughs> very smart people. Now in that forum, as you would say, uh, these people would sit down. It was more like a think tank. Um, you know, they were all getting together, um, in discussing how they can, uh, accumulate information the Highlands Forum uh, was, I think, the epicenter of pure knowledge of what was coming because the Bush Jr. administration was very well on board right after 9-11. It was the most bizarre coming of things that I had ever seen. The Patriot Act put together biometrics starting to be collected. Certain cities and states had secret memorandums of understanding with the FBI and the CIA and other agencies to collect information. So children usually born after 2001 had their genetic code deposited upon, you know, where they pricked their foot, you know, that one, right? Yep. So, um, they collected all your information. What they did was instead of going to the public sectors first, they had a guy named Robert Cuthbertson, who is a career uh, within the FBI. And around 2004, after they got busted for the elections, right, um, 
they um, started to collect biometrics from companies. So uh, in 2003 to 2006, we saw this upgrade that buildings had in security because of 9-11. So they got a shit ton of federal money for that. And they started to do passes like chip IDs so you can go through your buildings. Uh, some were retinal, retinal scans. They would all take face pictures of you uh, for their department when they hired you. Um, they would fingerprint you privately, you know, within a company. And um, Robert Cuthbertson is an FBI agent. He works for F He's an FBI career agent for the DOJ. He was the one putting out all the requests for proposals because it was his job to pool all that information. And then through TSA, they implemented new programs for facial recognition. But not only that, reading your phones. See, a lot of people think they put their phone on airplane mode and it's all good. While you're on the airplane, they have every right to read all your texts. I have been witness where I'm actually interpreting for foreigners who are stopped by TSA. And this was, uh, I think it was about 11 years ago. There was a big stink up because this guy was, you know, some important person's diplomat thingamajig and they messed up paperwork. But what they had in his texts was insane. I remember the guy telling me, you know, to interpret. And I was just like, while I was listening, I was like, oh my gosh, no freaking way. So check this out. So they were saying to this guy, and I'm going to name him Mustafa, right? Um, you were texting your friend saying how, you know, you wanted to come and live in the U.S. and you just need to find a good American girl, but they're all heathens. Uh, is this true? Are you here not on vacation, but to marry an American girl, even though they're heathens? And I'm like, what the... And the guy was like, well, you know, that's just a funny joke. I'm here with family. I'm a diplomat, blah, 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 blah. And they couldn't believe he was dip diplomat. He was actually, just letting you know, he was. It's just that the State Department has their shit so fucked up sometimes. It's ridiculous because they just hand out these diplomat passports like crazy. So basically he was stopped because they questioned his diplomatic passport, but then they also stopped him because of text. Then he was like, hey, uh, two years ago in this message that you brought over from another phone that was in England, you said, you know, this, this, this about America and that you were going to make sure that you can live there forever. So they were just worried about him being an overstay, right? So uh, this is 12 years ago. You know, this is, yeah, it was like, it was 2009 to be exact. They can access all your messages on an airplane. Every single one. They don't need a warrant. It's for national security. And they can read everything. This is why I seldomly will work on a plane, on a laptop, with hard, dri with hard drives never, FYI, right? Um, and I'll just watch a Netflix movie <laughs> that I've downloaded. So even if you're on airplane mode, they will read everything. The minute you land, as you're going through, they're listening and watching everything. All this data is collected in the sky. We have eyes, lots of eyes. Those collect data. You have to ask yourself, where do they put all of it?
How many of you have stored things, right? On your computer and you're just like, shit, I'm out of memory. I need another drive. Oops, another drive. Oops, another drive. One minute of the world's communications is like a, a gajillion hard drives. So I want to ask you a question. Just to ponder, we're not going to answer this question right now. Where are they being stored? How are they compiling this data into a blockchain? And where is it being stored? Think one minute, you've just captured everybody's data. One minute, just the United States. One minute. You know what? Let's make it 10 seconds. You've already run out of all the hard drive space you've got in 20 million Best Buys put together. So depending on the compression mechanisms that you know of, right? How do you keep the chain of custody? How do you archive it? How do you file it? How do you identify it? How do you put it together? And then in the end, where do you fucking put it, right? Because you need to create a chain of command. You can't just say, oh, you know, Tori called, you know, Joe and they were talking. Oh, you got to have the time, the place, the geolocation of Tori and Joe during the conversation and the whole snippet. Not only that, you have to have the satellite geoposition and location of Tori. You can actually see Tori sitting on the toilet talking to Joe and what shirt she's wearing, how far her pants are pulled down and everything. Right. So you've got all that data in one conversation. You know that Joe's cooking over the stove. <clears throat> you know <clears throat> that he just flicked the lights on. You have all of this. So all of that is being stored where? And how? The question is how? How good is the compression data? I mean, now everyone's like, I got solid slate drive. It's like, that's not impressive. It's not impressive. So the question is how? Well, hopefully the Highland Group <laughs> Forum, the Highland Forum Group uh, FOIA may give you some inclinage to that. Because the concerns that I had when Google went over to North Korea was their proximal access to uh, underwater cables. I've been talking about this for forever and a day. And... You know, everyone just ignored it. Yeah, big deal. We're just building a fork off, you know, the Asian lines. No, nothing to see here, right? Nothing to see. But then on top of that, I also talked about monopolies. What was the first lawsuit President Trump put forward after going into office? Do you guys remember who he sued as an administration? He sued. AT&T will direct TV. And the reason was, is because they were getting a monopoly on everything, right? They were getting a monopoly on everything. So Dish Network couldn't offer HBO. They were ticking up the prices, even though in court, they said, I wrote an article about this. You should go find it. It's quite, it's quite detailed, quite detailed. So you should read it. It's on torysays.com. Look for Dish Network. That's how you're going to find it. And Dish TV fought hard. Um, uh, the Trump administration fought hard and now OAN's getting knocked off of AT&T. No shit, <laughs> no shit. But, you know, good thing we have Jeff Bezos coming in on the end, um, to make sure that, um, uh, there's some mitigation. Now, 
so you understand these underwater cables and so you understand this data collection, right? Schmidt had gone to North Korea and tried to offer them information. Now, I am <laughs> going to show you an old clip. You guys are going to laugh. Um, where someone says it straight out. Hold on. This is from this is 2014. Hold on. It's a 22nd clip. Let me add it on here. All right. You guys ready? Russian President Vlad. Damn it. Hold on. Russian President Vladimir Putin has urged people not to use Google, saying it's a CIA project. He was speaking at a media forum in St. Petersburg. He told the audience that Google collects users' personal data and then sends it to the savers base in the U.S. Oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. What, what, where did they say um, they send it? Oh, okay. You caught that, right? You caught that. So it's it's quite important for us to remember what Davos is, and you're going to be like, what? Listen to what he said. Listen to what they said. And remember, hmm, communications, Google, the agency, Google, the agency, Google, the agency. Keep repeating, I'll keep repeating it <laughs> as much as I can. Because, you know, it was Google that actually sued Russia. Back in the day, when was it that they sued them? I think it was like, oh, 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 crap. They had sued them earlier, but they also sued them this year. This is why it came to mind. So Google filed a lawsuit with SDNY uh, last month against two um, Russians uh, for uh, allegedly creating and running the Gluptaba botnet, right? Apparently, they had a, a sophisticated architecture uh, to maintain a botnet, right? And um, they couldn't take it out. Now, again, when Google files a lawsuit, who's really filing the lawsuit? Right? Because I remember that a lot of people, when I was talking about 23andMe, oh, that's a Google company. It's like, no, it's a government company. All of these ancestry. This is the military industrial complex of the agency, not the good guys of the Central Intelligence Agency, which we don't even need. I mean, with everything at our fingertips, why can't we have transparency? Hmm? I digress. Why can't we have transparency? I digress. Well, let's take a quick break. And the quick break should be great for us to just watch uh, the short, uh, historic speech by Martin Luther King, since today is Martin Luther King Day. The millions of Negro slaves who have been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation 
and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time <laughs> to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time <laughs> to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment, this sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 
1963 is not an end, but a beginning. And those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. And the marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, 
No, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today.
I have a every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Like someone said, that was the first MAGA movement. But I think that it's important that we think of something. Now, that rally was massive. And it was all coordinated with no internet, no Facebook groups, no cell phones, right? No forums, no Xbox, no Telegram, no Twitter, nothing. Did you guys spot the feds in there? There were like a couple of them uh, <laughs> when they closed up. But because he was so effective, imagine all those people without social media, without the ability. Obviously, they were not allowed to talk about it much. He was assassinated. 
he became more important because he was assassinated. And if you pay attention during his speech, he seemed concerned or alert. I urge you to watch it again. Sometimes sacrifice is done by many. And that could be in the form of, you know, mother sacrifices her life for a kid. You know, a soldier steps in front to sacrifice his life for the family, not because he's offering it, but because he's fighting, right? He's not like, look at me, I'm going to slip my wrist, we're good, right? They go there and they give up something for the sake of something bigger to be saved. And so <clears throat> Martin Luther King sacrificed his ability to stay in the North and put his head down, sacrificed his safety, because obviously if the old guard wants to retain the power that the new guard had, which were the slave owners, right? Um, they had to make something monumental. We wouldn't have had such a big deal with the civil rights movement being signed if MLK wasn't assassinated. I want you guys to listen carefully to what I'm telling you. If they had not assassinated JFK, there would not have been a movement as big as it was. Meaning when they were passing the Civil Rights Act, when they were doing all these things, when they were pushing for equality among all people of any color, sex, creed, they needed there to be a visible sacrifice. The fact that he rose up in the ranks and he was loud and he could draw a crowd like that wasn't a, was a, <laughs> was an amazing feat but it wasn't enough to take it over and make it global. It just seemed like people asking for their rights and protesting peacefully. So just like when they took out JFK or Garfield, they were all at moments. Well, they took them out to shut them up more, right? And at that point, people just thought, oh, it's just a crazy guy, blah, blah, blah. It was the agency. MLK was also taken out by the agency because they realized they need to take him out because him being sacrificial and handing over civil rights wouldn't be a big deal that they can't fix. Because if he stays alive, he's going to empower people to think for themselves, both black and white. And we can't have that shit happening. We need to shut him down. Yet that backfired in their face real good. Obviously, they got the civil rights, but it still continued the conversation because you can't have him and JFK and RFK all going and people like, yep, yep, trust the government. Nope. So it boomeranged, hence why they have not taken out President Trump because uh, they can't. <laughs> you know, I'd really love to see him VP with Alveda King. Totally would. Anyway, um, uh, see, what we have right now is that sacrifice doesn't always come as your life, right? You sacrifice a lot of things uh, for your family. Like, um, you know, I sacrifice my vices uh, to get my kids something. I um, sacrifice my time and sleep and effort for my country, right? These are all sacrifices. You give it up for something good. So when people um, think 
of sacrifice. They should not see it so much as giving it away because that's not something they should be wanting to give it away saying, you know, the, 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 the extra three hours of sleep I can get, I can put that away because I can go run errands to make a great breakfast for my daughter in the morning. It's the, that outweighs my three hours of sleep. Having my set job for the sake of taking the vaccine and having that stability is okay, but does it outweigh my rights as an individual? How much do I value my freedom is another way. We have to understand that every single time someone sacrifices something small or something big, it's for something better, right? When they do these things. Joe Biden actually had the cheek to say that George Floyd made a bigger impact with his death than Martin Luther King Jr. You don't believe me? Take a listen. But even Dr. King's assassination did not have the worldwide impact that George Floyd's Mm -hmm. death did. What? Are you going to compare a murder a rapist, a thief, and a drug addict getting held down at the knee because he swallowed a shit ton of drugs and died to Martin Luther King Jr. So then that tells you, wait a minute, was that a setup too? You'd be very surprised. A lot of things seem very, very orchestrated. Now, Um, I was actually contemplating, like, what is it that we, the people can do? Obviously we need to fix 2020 and there are people that are set on don't vote. Right. But I can tell you one thing, knowing how these machines work, right? Your vote is very important because the more votes you have there, the more you break the algorithm. That's how it broke and Trump won in 2016. So we do need to come out in masses and vote. But then it's like, okay, so you vote, but then what? Well, you know what? I was thinking, who's the, who are the, who's the ultimate person that can actually overturn elections, right? It's just an idea. And I put it out on a poll and a lot of people were like state legislators. Actually, your secretary of state can fucking overturn that shit right away. So guess what we need to be running for? <laughs> Got 50 states, right? I think SOS Tory and SOS U can get shit done. I'm going to run on that bitch too. Because then we take it all down. We should just all run for SOS. I mean, nobody ever looks at that position. And you can campaign if you're in a red state. I'm going to decertify the elections once I'm in. And then I'll have to step down, but we're decertifying them, bitches. Let's see how many people for Trump will actually vote for you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's all you have to do. I'm going to decertify. I don't care if it's not enough. If we get a couple of states, that's it. It's game over. And, you know... God has a way of bringing this into, you know, position. That would be a a pretty good deal. But your state's not consistent. It's still freaking corrupt. Let me tell you about this. Blah, 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 blah. So um, I think we need to start running SOSs. What do you guys think? 
Uh, so get with your groups, whoever got the cojones, and we'll boost you up as high as we can. I think that's important. Uh, that's the best way. Forget, forget that, um, <laughs> my state's not contested. Nobody cares. Just get in there and freaking overturn it. The more we get overturned, the better, because all the machines are corrupt and we bring them back to pen and paper. I think that's, that's the way to go. Fast, simple. It is what it is. Just saying, uh, I think it's uh, pretty interesting, right? What do you think? Well, I thought that we could use a bit of a laugh. So the five actually reacted to the Democrats whining. Again, they're whining because they're not getting their way. Oh, but they will. And you'll be pissed. Fed up with President Biden and his incompetent administration. administration. A new, new poll showing Americans very frustrated with the president. They think Biden is out of touch with the most pressing issues. The top three words used to describe how the administration is making people feel so far. Frustrated, disappointed and nervous. The problem isn't just with Biden. The whole Democrat Party seems to be out of touch with the American people who are suffering and old guards like James Carville are issuing this warning. Watch. I think a lot of the Democratic base has not been told or informed of the things that that, that President Biden and, and, and this Congress has accomplished. Democrats whine too much, Chuck. <laughs> Just quit being a whiny party and get out there and, and fight and tell people what you did and tell people the exact truth. Yeah, that's no fun. Uh, so Harold Ford Jr., we've got a couple of Clintonites uh, trying to frame what's happening with these horrible numbers. You said you have James Carville obviously saying, quit being a whiny party. But then Joe Lockhart, who once did the job that Dana Perino did for George W. Bush, he was President Clinton's spokesperson. He's saying that the coverage is unfair. The press coverage <laughs> of Joe Biden has just been unfair. And he thought you were going to get a dividend for bringing normalcy back to America. So where do you stand, Harold Ford Jr.? I'm more with the uh, the Carville. I, I think James Carville, um, not only is he saying stop whining, does it does it apply to, to Biden? I think it also applies to, you know, stop whining about press coverage. Uh, Dana knows as well as anyone, you're going to get negative coverage and positive coverage, uh, but you can't bank on, you can only bank on a negative coverage and hope you get some positive coverage. I think Carville had it right, tout the accomplishments, but I would add a couple of more things. One, you got to fix the border uh, and you got to demonstrate that you have a policy and that you are paying attention to and that you're going to work to get it done. Two, I'd create a supply chain task force that every week we would give a sense of what we were doing to unclog those lanes that are making it harder or really impossible for goods to get into the country, which all in many ways is contributing heavily to inflation, uh, to inflation woes. Three, stop trying to be the Senate leader, Mr. President. Be president. Use the bully pulpit. Advance your agenda that way. Lead the process to Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi. You ought to get out and explain what's in what you want, why you want it, and ask the country to support it. And finally, give Joe Manchin what he wants on Build Back Better. Put it on the floor and take the doggone victory in front of you. HFJ 2024. Love yes. to see it. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Jesse, that's great advice. Tell your accomplishments. But when you have the Supreme Court striking down your vaccine mandate, uh, you have inflation that's ravaging the country and hurting low income earners. And then you have a senator from your very own party uh, turning down, modifying the filibuster. 
What are the accomplishments exactly, Jesse? There are no accomplishments to tout. James is concerned with marketing. This is not about marketing. This is about a product. No one wants the product Biden is selling. He's like the sales guy that keeps on trying to sell you something that you're not there to buy. There used to be a guy in Long Island. I used to go to the store and I used to go in for, say, Christmas lights. He'd be like, Mike, where are the Christmas lights? What aisle? And he'd be like, no, 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 no. Let me first show you these Adirondack chairs, Mr. Waters. I said, Mike, <laughs> I'm here for the lights. I don't want Adirondack chairs. He said, no, 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 no. Sit down in these chairs. Trust me, you're going to love these chairs. I sit down to humor them. I say, Mike, they're great chairs, but I need Christmas lights. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? Don't tell the manager, Jesse. I'm going to knock off 10% of these chairs. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm going to do this for you. They're basically free when you think about it. And I, I said, what are you talking about, Mike? Um, first of all, these chairs have stickers on them that say sold. He goes, oh, well, th not these chairs. These are floor samples, but they're back ordered. And you're going to get these chairs in about six months. Oh. <laughs> so it's the same thing with Biden. Like he's selling us something that we don't want. And the stuff he is selling us, he can't even deliver like the voting thing and build back better. So what are we doing? All we want is a nimble administration that's able to pivot away from their pre-planned political agenda and towards the agenda of the American people, the things that we care about now, today, and they can't do it. No, because the American people are busy getting blamed for all of this, Dana. <laughs> and I think that's part of what is driving these poll numbers down. You know, you had a Quinnipiac poll last week uh, that you talked about 33 percent. You know, the the average polling, the average approval rating for the president is anywhere from 40 to 44 percent. Still not good. No. So, you know, what can they possibly do to make things better when their policies, to Jesse's point, what the American public, what they've actually bought are making things worse and exacerbating things like in inflation? So what do you do to make it better? Well, the Quinnipiac poll definitely lit a fire under some Democrats because it was a shocking one and it was considered possibly an outlier, right? So they wrote a memo from the White House and basically saying this is not really the case. Biden's actually fairly popular. Everything's fine. And the ink was not even dry on that memo when the new CBS poll came out, which basically reiterated what it was said, what, what uh, the Quinnipiac said. And one of the big focuses is the word focus in this poll. One of the things I thought it was interesting is only 33% think Biden and Democrats are focused on the key issues they care a lot about. So they are selling Adirondack chairs when we came in for Christmas lights and people are irritated about it. Now, polls like this with a trajectory, you would expect to see some sort of possible leadership change or major change in direction. But everything I'm picking up is that there's not there's not one that they're going to continue to try to drive on voting rights in particular. And it's likely that they will lose that vote again tomorrow. Interesting. So, you know, Dana's talking about some of the numbers, Greg, 40 percent of the country in the CBS poll, 40 percent uh, say they're nervous about this administration. We're still in the first year of this president's first term. What is year two going to be like? Oh. Just thinking about how Adirondack chairs are so uncomfortable for short people. <laughs> you guys don't understand it. But like if, if you, you have to sit your ass all the way back to the chair and then you're it's just not you can't find a way to sit in them. And and then you get a splinter. And I, I now I'm just that's all I've been thinking about for this entire segment. All right. Here's the weird thing about these numbers. This is what's crazy. OK. Joe Lockhart saying the media is, by the way, in scientific terms, he is a gibbering moron. I think we've understood this for a while. But 
you have to understand there's actually very, very, very little bad coverage about Joe Biden. If you step, I mean, we talk about it all the time, but that's because that's what we do on this. But there's very little bad coverage on him. But it's not necessary because his ineptitude mm. and decrepitude has become part of mainstream culture. It's like you don't have to talk that bad about him. You don't have to criticize because it's kind of been understood that this is kind of what we're stuck with. And it's probably and, and the saddest part about it is and I beaten a dead horse here, quite literally. Joe put woke woke wokeism before the welfare of the country. You have some really, really, really big issues here, whether it's crime, fentanyl poisoning, uh, uh, inflation, covid, the border. These are things that affect every citizen, black or white, you name it. Right. But instead, Joe is like, you know, January 6th, voting rights, pronouns. He's basically AOC in a bad grandpa rubber suit. And and you and we ha- we did get sold like some bad Adirondack chairs. I think the best advice for the Dems, besides running uh, Herald 2024, Woo! is to develop a few more tools than race politics and woke apologism. Yeah. Right. There, the issues are sitting there, man. The Republicans are generally slow. If you, you can beat them to it, but you got to let go of this stuff. The symbolic CYA social justice, the energy they put into that could power a small city, a nauseating small city like Portland. Hear what he has to say on Martin Luther King Day. I'm sure he'll talk a little bit about Russia, maybe China. China's all over. Maybe MLK China, China, China is all over. I'm sure he's going to be talking about that some. Ukraine, maybe the Texas synagogue in tech. There's so much to talk about. I can't wait. To hear what uh, the 45th president uh, decided was worthy of writing about this morning on MLK Day. Go ahead. Hit it. So let's recall, of course, Donald Trump, not on Twitter, but he does send out statements from time to time on email. And uh, here's what we have. This one just arrived. Quote, will Morning Joe be canceled? He and Mika's ratings are very low. They're having an extremely hard time finding an audience to listen to the fake news they spurn. Mm. Losing them Mm. would be very sad. Hope it doesn't happen. What? Hope it doesn't happen. So hope the operative uh, word. There he the is. Operative you know, words. He has got his finger. Hope it doesn't happen. And such kind words yeah. for the show. There. Hope it doesn't happen. Do- that was brilliant. I was laughing all along. I was muted. I'm sorry because you guys are complaining of the echo. So uh, what I was saying before is we talked about um, the church being burned down, Portland being savage, no arrests, right? <laughs> and then we have MSNBC crying about <laughs> that was, I'm just saying that was a super troll. That was a super troll. But there was this report from Forbes that was, that blew my mind. And I was just like, wait, did I really just see that? And I wanted to share it with you guys because it was incredible, just so that you can get the political climate bit. Thank you everyone for being here today. And again, if you can look across across the spectrum spectrum of all of our colleagues here, you can see that these are very important topics. One, uh, the federalization or attempt to federalize our election system by the Democrats, as well as using that as a tool then to remove the Senate filibuster. Um, one, I'm, I'm a former county auditor in Iowa, which serves as the local commissioner of elections. And I can tell you through Iowa's efforts through the years to update, modernize our uh, elections laws has only created greater voter participation with every election. 
It is not an attempt to suppress the vote. And it goes directly against what Democrats are saying. Now, for the filibuster, for years, actually for decades, our Democratic colleagues have been strongly opposed to what we call blowing up the Senate, because that's, in effect, what it would do. And uh, Chuck Schumer had said that if we get rid of that 60-vote requirement, it would be, quote, doomsday for democracy. Then Senator Joe Biden said the nuclear option, quote, is a fundamental power grab for the majority party. What has changed, folks? Fast forward to now, and these same Democratic leaders are the ones that are now singing a far different tune. And folks, that's exactly what I call the filibuster flip-flop, okay? So maybe we'll see uh, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden wearing a pair of these around the Senate floor or the White House, okay? The filibuster flip-flop. So please tune in. Many of us will be speaking about this on the Senate floor as well. So. Uh, for all of our friends here in the media, I mean, we've we've done the work for you. We have gone back, we've provided you with the quotes from our friends and colleagues across the aisle. Um, you know, so what's going on right now that it's no longer a doomsday for democracy? Um, is it not a fundamental power grab any longer? I would love to see those headlines explaining their statements away. So you and I both know that nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is who's now in control, who's the majority party. So previous statements no longer apply. Again, the filibuster flip-flop. And if they do get their way, folks, we know that the Senate and our country will never be the same. And she's right. Now I want you to think. Think back in time. Back in time. When they were creating the Declaration of Independence, what was the problem that the colonies had? Do you guys remember what problem the colonies had? And why they were not aligning themselves? Because this is the same problem we're having here. See, all these governors love the fact that President Trump is not in office. Any governor saying different is a liar. But do you know why? So what happened was uh, governors of the state, which were like presidents of the state, said, no, we're not doing it because I don't want one person in charge of my state. This is my backyard. You ain't touching that. It wasn't about the slavery issue. This was the issue. The issue was that the states did not want to relinquish control because it's one thing that you have one person elected. But when you have all the other states to challenge you, they feel like they have some control in their backyard. It's kind of like mayors that feel like, you know, mayors of cities that have like a thousand people feel like they're God to those thousand people. The minute they step out of that and go into a city with quarter million people, 
you know, they feel puny, right? So the states are having a problem with relinquishing control because it relinquished local control. Don't think that your states don't have your own local good old boy clubs. Shut up. There's always that group of, you know, if you're in a state with 11 million people, there's about 100,000 people that think that they their shit doesn't stink and yours does, that they're better than you, okay? And they don't want to give that shit up. They want to be able to have control over their their states, their cities. They don't need someone giving. You know what? If they federalize elections, then the president decides who's made state. You name it, they pick it. And they're just like, yeah, it's not happening. That was the problem with Virginia and other states, when, other colonies, when they were discussing the Declaration of Independence. And George Washington said, that's fine. You'll relinquish some control, but we will not take all control so that we can all uh, work together. Now, why am I bringing up the colonies? <laughs> I mean, we are going to have the city and the country, and you're going to figure that out sooner or later. This is why it's important for you to understand the position you're in. You're not losing your freedom. You're not trying to stay out of the cage. You've been a slave and you are in a cage. You're breaking out. Why? Because the fuckers have no keys. You're the one keeping yourself in that cage. You're the one keeping yourself in that box. You're the one keeping yourself a slave. Every single American citizen right now is if they have no keys and we're charging at the door. I feel like I'm standing in front of a door. I've opened it. I'm like, get out. And everyone's like, oh my God, she's nuts. And it's like, just get the fuck out. Just walk out. Just walk out. Walk out. All you have to do is walk out and say no. For some reason, people think that Trump came to save them from slavery. He came to show you that the door is not locked, that there are no keys. You are the key master. You can open the door anytime you like and exit. You're just not exiting. That is all he did. So no one's going to come and save you because you can only save yourself. No one's going to give you any keys to get out of your cage. You are the damn key. And the more you realize it, easier it becomes to understand how you attack it. You are the key. Now, going back to Martin Luther King Jr., why did they kill him? Well, Okay, people would be upset. They'd cry over it. They'd say, oh, it was probably a racist. And they'd forget about it. Because if Martin Luther King remained, then a lot of people would be flooding out of those doors. And they would lose control. So then the question is, why haven't they taken out President Trump? Because now we have social media. And it's very different. See, you can't say things. We already know the suspects in a crime incident before they announce it on the news. They can't even hide things anymore. The left, the right, they're both the same. This is how they keep you in the cage. Look left, look right, look up, look down. Look, they've got you trapped. The minute you step outside and you're like, yeah, so I'm not listening to you. Go away. All right. So. Um, 
as you guys know, Garrett Ziegler, amazing guy, by the way, is writing like a Mueller style report of the Hunter Biden laptop. I don't know if he's touched upon this because it's kind of shady, but I'm going to be publishing something tomorrow. I may not do a show. Uh, I have a procedure that I have to do. Um, I have to do a surgery, but before I do the surgery on my face, I have to um, do some dental work. So I might not be able to talk. So that means I'll publish it in an article. Um, now, remember, I know a lot of you shared how Sarah Carter and Rudy Giuliani were talking about um, Hunter Biden smuggling people in through the border that I wrote about over a year ago. It's interesting. They also talked about how they were using uh, private emails to have formal communications as president and vice president. And that, you know, is something that I published. And now people are going to start talking about that a little bit. But what I am going to um, publish actually shows that the office of Barack Hussein Obama um, was used for private enrichment. And um, this is going to be, I mean, you can't unsee this. Um, it's uh, correlated, found the times, the dates, and what the news reported when it happened. This is pretty huge. So um, tomorrow I will be publishing that because I probably won't be able to talk, um, you know, uh, because of the, I'm, I'm only doing like, yeah, because of the procedure. So I'm going to the dentist to get the procedure done, not to the oral surgeon yet. I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'm thinking about it. I'm just like, if it's not spreading, why mess with that, right? So um, that is something quite fascinating uh, that I'm going to be putting out because I would love to see the response from the media on this. Now, before we go, I wanted to play five minutes, the first five minutes of President Trump's rally. Obviously, all of you heard the bells and you saw he was wearing no tie. Let's go. That's a big crowd out there. I tell you what, the cars are stretching, say, 25 miles. Now, will the press report it today? The New York Times showed a picture of the seats being put down, and nobody was here because I think the picture was taken yesterday. The cars, they just said they've never seen anything like it. It's a great honor to be with you, and I love Arizona. We had a tremendous victory in Arizona that was taken away. I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. And we're going to have, I think, a great year. Last year, we had a rigged election and the proof is all over the place. We have a lot of proof and they know it's proof. They always talk about the big lie. They're the big lie. But the fake news and the lamestream media refused and they refused. They refused. They refused to talk about it. They continue to refuse. So number one, he said, happy new year. Um, actually on the 17th, it was the old, um, it was the 17th on Saturday. Um, it was the old calendar new year. So I, I shared a couple pictures. Um, 
because I went out to celebrate New Year. So I just thought I'd um, point one. He used to talk about it. They say, while it is unsubstantiated and the big lie, the big lie, the big lie is a lot of bullshit. That's what it is. Because they're in the pocket of the radical left Democrats, the same people who are destroying our country, and they're destroying our country. And you have no doubt about it. We've had more problems. We've had more destruction, I think, than five presidents put together in the last year. On top of it all, people are being persecuted for using freedom of speech. You talk about the corrupt election, but more and more information is coming out, and it's coming out far worse than anyone ever thought it could be. And it would be a lot easier for me to go out and enjoy my life and say, you know what? We did great. You know, I ran twice, and we won twice, and we did better the second time. We did much better the second time, you know, that 12 million more votes. I always say we ran it twice, but we did a hell of a lot better the second time. This crowd is a massive symbol of what took place because the people are hungry for the truth. They want their country back. They want their country back. Between the open borders and the bad elections, and we were always thought of a, a beautiful country that had fair elections, and now we're a laughing stock all over the world for many reasons. For many reasons. 2022, despite so far being a total catastrophe for a country, is going to be a big one for the people of this great state. I love this state. I love this state. Great state of. Arizona. Remember Joe Biden used to say a lot. Uh, it's wonderful to be in, uh, let's see, where the hell are we? We're in Iowa. No, you're Idaho. No, it's Iowa, isn't it? No, we, we've never done that. We've never even come close. We don't want to do that. That's one of those deals. You do that, it's over. I don't care how well you speak. You do that, it's over. And they did it plenty. But we're going to fire the radical Democrat Senator that do nothing on borders, Mark Kelly, and we're going to elect an incredible. Terry Lake, I'll tell you, she is incredible. She's been with us from the beginning on the election fraud and everything else, and she's going to be your next governor. And we're going to end Nancy Pelosi, crazy Nancy's crooked political career once and for all. Where is Karen? Where is said, Abdul, you do anything with respect to our, you kill anybody. We didn't lose one soul. Energy independent, what they've done to energy is so bad, and that's causing a big part of the inflation. The mandates are a disaster for them. When you look at what's happening with the economy, the mandates are just absolutely decimating our economy. And I did, you know, we did a good thing. We have almost 300 federal judges on the bench now during my administration, and Three Supreme Court justices, and they're very good people, and they've been doing a good job, and they have some very, uh, they did a good decision, a big decision on mandates, but I'll tell you what, they have some big decisions coming up, so we're lucky to have them on the bench.
It's no wonder that the Joe Biden approval ratings have now crashed well into the 20s. That's a low one. And some people say they're actually much below that. How do you do that? The only one lower is Kamala. Kamala's lower. And the polls show that if an election were held today, we would trounce them so badly at a landslide in every way. Just as we really did on November 3rd, we trounced them. We trounced them. If we had an honest press, that election would have been much different. On top of all of that, two days ago, the Supreme Court rightly declared that Joe Biden's very sinister and malicious, and I don't know what they're doing. They're hurting us so badly, but getting out, well, they might be evil. Yeah, they might be. They're either evil or they're incompetent. But they declared the mandates largely unconstitutional. And by the way, we put those justices there for a reason. And I will say this, the court system and the court decisions that are being made and will be made, it's going to be an incredible victory, in my opinion, for common sense. It's a victory for American freedom. We have to have this victory. If we don't have this victory, if we don't have the right decisions, but we have great, great people. You know, we talk about the three justices, but when you get almost 300 judges, federal judges, it's uh, I think you're seeing things a lot differently right now, a lot differently. What Biden did and the radical Democrats are doing with their courts, if you take a look at what they've done with the COVID. I call it the China virus. Is that okay if I call it the China virus? It's a tyrannical agenda. It's a criminal agenda, what they're doing. They're handling it so badly. And, you know, the H1N1, remember Joe used to call it the N1H1. I said, no. But the H1N1 was handled very, very badly. Smaller scale, much smaller scale. Not the same kind of uh, problem. And, you know, what he's done, I, I told Fauci as an example, no, I'm going to close it up to China. No, because he wanted it. If you remember, he said no mask, then he became a radical masker. But Fauci fought like hell to not close it to China and then admitted that we saved tens of thousands of lives because I closed it in January very early. Then we closed it to Europe. But the problem is I didn't listen to him, but Biden's made him the big, the big person. He's like the king. Fauci's the king. But with these decisions they're making, they're wrecking and devastating people's lives, firing Americans from their jobs, forcing innocent children to grow up in mass education, crushing their development, demolishing their futures, locking people into their homes. What they've done over the last year, wreaking havoc on our economy, going mandate crazy and running neighborhoods. If you look at what's going on, they're just running roughshod all over this country. And they're truly hurting the American people like they I don't think they've taken away their liberties. What they're doing is incredible. They've taken away their dignity. They've taken away their liberties. And I say enough is enough and we are not going to take it anymore because our country is going to hell 
It's a disaster. And it all happened in such a short period of time. You know, they want to knock out the filibuster and get things approved. And it's hanging by a thread. It's hanging by a thread. This is the moment the American people must take their lives and future back. We have to do it. We have to be strong. We have to be strong. It's time for the radical Democrats to leave our families alone, leave our elderly alone, leave our children alone with their strong immune system. Leave those beautiful children with that powerful immune system. They have a good one. You know, Barron had COVID. And by the time we checked him the second time, it was gone. It's called they have a strong system. And to be doing what we're doing with the kids, leave our businesses alone. Leave all of us the hell alone. Tell Joe Biden the Americans' health choices are none of his business. We can make our own choices. And it hasn't worked. You know, you take a look at New York, what a disaster that's been. You take a look at other states, what a disaster. California has been a total catastrophe. And they were locked down. They were locked down as close as you could uh, be. By the way, how did Cuomo do as governor? Really wonderful job. Huh? What a wonderful job he did. That guy, I'd watch him every day on television. I'd say, he's saying the wrong stuff. But it's, a sh it's really, it's a shame. What happened to some of our great places? But I'm proud that I was the anti-mandate president and we have great successes in Texas and Florida and, frankly, in Republican, almost all Republican states. Throughout the pandemic, I fiercely resisted mandates of any kind and always and always will. We have to. We have to. They've proven ineffective. So if you really believed in them at the beginning, and I guess we can understand that, but it didn't take long that you would say, no, we're not doing it anymore. My administration invested heavily in all of the above strategies, including therapeutics, you know, we have therapeutics that are so powerful and so good. Some people could call them cures. The fake news will go crazy when you say that. They don't like hearing that, but they are uh, they are fantastic. The antibodies and antibody testing and the testing is such a disaster. Remember that say, where's the test? We did an incredible job in testing and we were really there as in an infancy. Nobody knew anything about it. We figured it out. There's no testing. There's no anything. You can't get anything. And the testing has been a disaster. They said now, can you imagine if you own a testing company and you go up? They said, no, no, no. I want $150 a test. So now I am going to drop a little bit of an Easter egg to end this show today because we might not have one tomorrow. Did you know that the U.S. Supreme Court decided the presidential election 22 years ago? Do you guys know that? Now, I know a lot of people think they know what's going on. And there's a lot of people that know some of what's going on. And some people that don't care to know what's going on. They just want shit fixed. And then there's people that don't want things fixed. Now, Every single case against Dominion has been thrown out. The defamation, you know, uh, is, you know, uh, that they filed against um, Sidney Powell, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, and Patrick Byrne are for them to have public appeasement that they got victory for being slandered to bring on um, 
support for their products. Now, John Poulos had said on air that he started the company and he started in elections in like 2018, if I remember. That's a lie. Because Tory's defamation suit, my defamation suit, will blow this shit wide open. Now, why? Well, my affidavit cannot be debunked. Yet they all laughed at the Kraken. So when you see someone, they, and they might be warranted, they could sit there and troll me. When you see them attacking me, now that I'm in court against Dominion, against Media Matters, against Ali Akbar, against Congressman Cohen, where we're going to discuss AT&T explosions, where we're going to discuss my affidavit, right? That tells you they're not on the side of America because they can hold on to all that old news and use it later. So the point is, why are they supposedly patriots and attacking me? If they want to attack me, they can do it after I get exposed as lying on my um, affidavit, right? Why are they doing it now? Why are they doing it now that I'm getting into this lawsuit to help my country? I know I, I, a lot of people are upset. She's going to get billions of dollars. So, so were you ridiculed on a global stage? Hmm. Were you? Were you ridiculed on a global stage? Do you have little itty bitty trolls? Are you upset that we're not friends and I won't fund your shit? Look, bottom line is, it doesn't matter if it's done out of spite. But what you have to see is the random people talking shit, right? That are attacking me with things that are forever and a day old when I'm actually suing people for the information, fake information that they filed. And what hurts is, is that they're hurting me. Okay. Been down that road before it happened 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. I mean, we could keep going. They could just keep recycling the same thing, saying the same thing over and over and over again, because most of them have the literacy of my, of the size of my shoe. None of them have read my case. In fact, actually one of my attorneys today, uh, cause we filed, um, against, uh, the, you know, did the shit, the state of North Dakota is so weird. You have to like notify them. So we actually had to name all the defendants. The first thing that came out of his mouth after reading of thousands of pages, he said, damn, they did a freaking number on you. I'm so pissed because if anyone actually read my case, right, they would understand that the trafficking thing was one thing, the reservations, the state department, that's not what bothered them. What bothered them was that I exposed $181 million fraud that they conducted and charged to the people while collaborating with Obama's U.S. Army Corps engineers to save their only state-run bank. That is their big problem. The, 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 the me arrested, getting their stupid losers arrested, like, you know, their, their, um, U.S. Marshal, their BCI guys, their sheriffs and that, that was, that was playtime for me. Okay. That was playtime for me. My thing was $180 million state, the bank of North Dakota, the only state bank in the nation was going under. They needed $181 million. They needed to sell off their student loans and they couldn't because they had that deficit. So what they did was they had the Obama administration 
pause the U.S. Army Corps engineer to do a survey for flood protection. So they said, oh, yeah, he's just dragging his feet because he's the Democrat. So legislators passed a bill giving that city of Minot $181 million loan from the Bank of North Dakota, which in underwriting, charging it to a city, makes it valid cash, therefore allowing them to sell off all their student loans and maintaining their bank because they spent all that shit. So that is the real reason, because it was the most biggest Rico shit you've ever seen, cross agencies, cross borders. So for people to understand, hence the flood shit, that's what I was trying to put out and expose. So when people talk smack and then, oh, it's because of the trafficking, but she didn't know this and her family member this and then, and then, and it's like, uh, that was nothing. And they actually murdered my informant who was one of their boy toys when he was a young boy. The, but you know, but you know, clicks, right. And likes, right. Cause if you actually read it, right. I kept it as quiet as I could. All of you should have been like, damn, uh, where's the Fourth Amendment here? Nope, doesn't apply to Tory. Where's the complaint? They even admit, they admit in their fucking filing that they had no complaint and they started an investigation on me. That's all you have to know. And I know McCain kicked it off because it was McCain's fucking fingers into the U.S. Army Corps engineer that went ding, 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 ding. So when people talk a lot, they don't, they want to pull your tongue out as much as they can. Okay. They want to pull your tongue out as much as they can. So when you see a loser talking shit, say, Hey, you can trash her, but can you wait till after she's done with dominion? So if you're right, you know, the nation won't win. We won't, uh, you know, fix 2020 and you can trash the crap out of her. Right. But why not hold off if you're a real patriot and just hold on to it, keep your mouth shut for a second because they're not patriots. That's my point. Because they're most of these people are the crazy white supremacist guys, right? The the insane anarchist white supremacists, the ones that think Trump is, you know, globalist, da-da-da. Look, deals were made, right? On a global scale. Because it's so intricate, yet so simple at the same time, right? <laughs> but it's for our liberation and it's for our transparency. The only way to make things transparent is to let them pull their own pants down. So here you're seeing it pulling of pants down because our elections are the most integral part of our free speech. Our elections are the only thing that matters. And if someone is trashing the only person that can actually be in court with dominion, they are against your nation their traitors because they can, they can trash me, but they can wait at least until that's over. I mean, that makes sense, right? You could trash me. You could collect on it. You could trash me, trash me all you want. Talk shit about me all you want. Can you just wait till after my court case so that, you know, America has a fair shot. That's all. Can you just wait? I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's old news. It's not like you're going to make new news. Can you just wait to see it? Just go through first. I mean, that's fair, right? That's fair, isn't it? I think that's super fair. Can you wait? That's all. You, hey, neo-Nazi, loser, that's upset because you can't get clicks. Wait, wait till I'm done. Because if you don't, 
you will be the traitor. I mean, you already are, but never mind. Now, let me show you how this works. Yes, Biscuit. The U.S. presidential election of 2000 was one of the closest and most controversial elections in American history. Then, Vice President Al Gore ran against Texas Governor George W. Bush, the son of former President George H.W. Bush. Both were high-profile figures with opposing political views. The campaign season was tense. That tension all came to a head on election night, leading to one of the most unusual outcomes in history, a presidency secured by a Supreme Court ruling in Bush v. Gore. It was Tuesday night. The race was close all night. Americans were glued to their television sets. One minute Gore was in the lead. The next Bush was set to win. But soon, one fact became crystal clear. The election came down to whoever would win the most votes in the state of Florida. But why did Florida matter so much? In the U.S., presidential elections are not determined by the popular vote. Instead, we use a system called the Electoral College. Each state is designated a set amount of electoral votes, roughly based on their populations. In the year 2000, a highly populated state like California had 54 electoral votes, and the much less populated Delaware had three. The candidate who gets the most votes in each state gains all of the electoral votes. There are 538 electoral votes in all, and it takes at least 270 to win the presidency. But in 2000, neither candidate had enough electoral votes to clinch the presidency. Gore only had 255, Bush had 246. So it all came down to Florida's 25 electoral votes. Whoever won the state of Florida would take the presidency. But here's where things get tricky. When the polls finally closed in Florida, the results were just too close to call, which automatically triggered a recount by machine. When that was finished the day after the election, Bush had a small lead of about 900 popular votes out of 6 million ballots cast. Such a narrow margin allowed Gore to demand a recount by hand in four crucial counties. This meant that they count the votes in all those counties all over again. The Florida Secretary of State, a Republican who had also worked on Bush's campaign, insisted that this recount be completed by November 14th. The Gore campaign wanted more time, so they petitioned the Florida Supreme Court. The court extended the recount deadline to November 26th. But only two counties made it. One county gave up trying, and the fourth finished two hours late and was not allowed to hand in its tally. Still, with just two counties' recounts, Bush's lead had shrunk even further. It was now just about 500 votes. So the Florida Supreme Court granted the Gore campaign's request for a larger recount of 70,000 questionable ballots. But then the recount revealed a problem. Balloting methods. In some Florida counties, votes were cast using a hole punch. But if the hole wasn't punched properly, the machine wouldn't count it. In Palm Beach County alone, 29,000 ballots were found spoiled and discarded either because they weren't properly punched or because multiple candidates were voted for on the same ticket, presumably by mistake. Al Gore insisted that ignoring votes means ignoring democracy itself. It was now 19 days past Election Day and a winner still had not been declared. At this point, the United States Supreme Court intervened and halted the recount. By a 5-4 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ordered the recount be stopped. 
arguing that a recount of only some ballots violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. But of course, given the variety of balloting systems, counting all votes by the same standard was impossible. Technically, the U.S. Supreme Court let Florida Supreme Court still have the final say. But there was little left for that court to do but dismiss the case. Or conceded, and Bush was awarded the electoral votes and declared president. However, the Supreme Court's ruling did not appease Gore supporters. Many Americans saw the narrow majority vote in the Supreme Court as being split along partisan lines. Five justices favoring the Republican, four the Democrat. Critics would later claim bitterly that Al Gore lost the election by a margin of just one vote in the Supreme Court. Gore was the first presidential candidate in 112 years to lose the electoral vote, but win the popular vote, with a total of almost 550,000 more votes over Bush. It would be 16 years before this happened again in the 2016 presidential election of Donald Trump. Trump won the electoral vote, but lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by a margin of 2.9 million votes. In the end, Bush became president and served two terms. Gore continued his political life as an advocate for action against climate change. Meanwhile, Americans continued to debate the efficacy of the U.S. electoral system and voting procedures across each state. Well then, now you see what they're telling you the story is. Totally forgot the 2012, the 2004, where there was fraud. He totally skipped over that one. You see... The Democrats decided, see, while the Democrats were really busy with Clinton and they were shaping up to push over their guy, right, Gore, the Republicans were already working with tech and big companies. Remember, the Democrats <laughs> were old guard, but not the nice one. They weren't the official one. So I, it's kind of curious how the History Channel didn't go into the 2004 fraud, because that was one of the biggest election frauds. Ever. 2000 was nothing with the hanging chad. You saw the Democrats were like, every vote should be counted. Now they're like, fuck your votes, right? So weird. But the hanging chads was a plan. And SCOTUS ruled correctly by ceasing the and saying that they need to be counted because it's a violation. But they didn't know, right? They didn't know. But they did rule in the fact that every vote should be counted. So what has changed? What changed is the way things are done. See, the way things were filed. See, what changed was Operation Gridlock gassed up a lot of heads, a lot of people. And people thought if they have the fake botnets supporting them, that they would be able to replicate what 2000 did. That was their problem because if they thought carefully, and if they did it carefully, and if they followed the documents we gave them, which is you're doing exactly what they said you would do, who was penning them and who was guiding them into that box? When others were saying, don't go into that box. Well, hopefully we'll find ourselves in Scotuscape because the way I see it is we go, we reveal, we get, they appeal. The Supreme Court comes back, and then we go to SCOTUS. So pray, um, support my attorneys, pray for them, because uh, we we are going out of the gates right now, um, and we're going to hit hard, and we're going to keep hitting and keep hitting until this is done. Uh, 
So I believe that, um, you know, I think in like a week or so we should have our first, uh, responses, um, which will obviously be the dismiss. We already have the, the responses ready for that to see what they will come back with. Uh, because they spoke from a position of privilege that they knew. So what they need to do is cite their sources and explain how my affidavit is false. <laughs> they can't. See, when you when I wrote my affidavit, I wrote a, a massive one. It was like, God knows how many pages long. And then I sat there and looked at it with a friend of mine and that's an attorney. And I was like, you know, mm-mm. This is no good. Uh, this isn't good because this is me. This is my testimony. I don't want to give just my testimony. I want to stick to the law and the facts. Uh, everything else, I have to fish out from agencies and I have to do it through depositions. So what do I do? I cut out a lot of pages. I um, put together... Um, questions to myself is if I was the, the judge <laughs> um, reading it to see if I would take it or not. So I thought, okay, what if I put everything that I can publicly source and loop in the personal knowledge I have, which can also be publicly sourced to an extent. And I'm just going to, and that was my trap. And this is why uh, in every single court where my affidavit was filed in, no judge even talked about it. No judge even touched it because any judge that read my affidavit would say, shit, she cited government documents. She cited multiple researching. She cited legislation. She cited actual facts. We can't do this. See, uh, you know, it's kind of like with my lawsuit with the Mayfield High School. The guy started on a tangent. You know, the law firms, they were like, well, you know, social media and I object your honors. And, and he was like, he didn't say anything. And he continued, right? Social media and the news. I object your honor. <laughs> That's me defending myself. I object. Can we stick to the law, not feelings and, you know, whatever someone construes as facts. Let's stick to the law. Yes, biscuit. Let's stick to the law. And, um, and that's how my case is still alive. And I know this judge is actually a good judge. He was investigating election fraud in 2004, just so you know. So it's kind of, um, kind of, uh, interesting, um, how things turn out. <laughs> my cat's quite vocal today, uh, cause he knows that my daughter is going to come pick me up and take her to her place. Um, cause I have doctor's appointments tomorrow, so. I think he, I think he already knows, you know what I mean? Um, so just, uh, for those of you that, that were a little bit, um, baffled on those elections, I think it's important that you revisit the reports from the year 2000, um, because those will tell you a lot of, uh, they'll give you an insight of what's to come. And like president Trump said, it had to be this way or else we would still be in the same position once he's gone. Yes, Biscuit. He agrees. God bless everyone. Good night.